Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 282. This program is dedicated in memory of David ben Yecheskel Halevi. We are now in the week of Parshas Vayera, the fourth parsha from the beginning of Genesis, of Bereshis, which of course means we've, been ent- we've entered into the new year, into the new world, created on Rosh Hashanah, sanctified on Yom Kippur, celebrated on Sukkot. And now the Yaakov Holoch Ledarke, as we've been discussing in the previous weeks, Yaakov, which means each one of us goes on our journey, on our way. And you and I, and each of us is traveling. Life is a journey and a traveling. And in the words of the Alter Rebbe, we live with, our, with the times, Leb Midetzeit, which helps us navigate this journey and make sure this journey is going, taking us to the right places, avoiding the wrong places, and as well as going the right places to know how to travel, how fast to travel, how slow to travel, how to absorb and how to learn from all our experiences in fulfilling our greater calling for which our soul came down to earth. So that's a general introduction to what Teda teaches us. Teda Malosh Nehra, Teda is a guide, an instruction manual, an operator's manual, life's operator's manual. If you wish, a blueprint, as the Medrash says and the Rebbe cites very often. A blueprint for life. And each Pasha has its particular message that relates to that week and its messages to us in that leg of the journey. So we're now in Pasha's Vayera, and we will talk about a few lessons from this Pasha. And of course, I've spoken about this in previous years, so I will cross-reference. But let's begin with some thoughts and some of the... the, Vayera is filled with many, many messages, many lessons, and it's actually the first time we find that God appears to someone. We have it before as well, but a Pasha that should begin... That Hashem, God, appears to Avram Avinu, who was sitting at the tent. He was healing from the bris that we're told about in the previous chapter. And Hashem comes to visit him. This is where we derive the mitzvah of Bikr Chaylim, to visit the sick. We learn it from God. He came to visit Avram as he was healing. And then we learn the next mitzvah from the next event that happens right at the beginning of the chapter. That while God is visiting Avram, Avram raises his eyes and sees three strangers, three Arabs, nomads, traveling, and he turns to them to greet them and invite them in. He did not know they were angels. He thought they were just nomads. And he greets them, and from there we learn the mitzvah of Achnosis Orchim, another great mitzvah, inviting and welcoming guests. And we even learn from the fact that Avram and Abraham turned from God to greet these guests, that G'del Achnosis Orchim, G'del that is greater to greet guests than to receive the Shechina, God himself. Tremendous lesson. However, how did Avram Avinu know? We learn it from Avram. How did he know? God doesn't make appearances every day. Once in a historical moment, God comes to visit you. Even if a human being came to visit you in the hospital, God forbid, or somewhere you're healing, you don't just turn away to, to greet another guest. And here Avramovina turns away to greet the guest from which we derive this lesson and this uh, statement that it's so great. And the answer is quite obvious when you think about it. Avram was completely dedicated to a life not of his own, to what God wants. So he realized and understood very clearly that when three nomads, three wanderers, 
are traveling through a desert and you don't greet them, that in a way is defying God. It's an insult to God. So he wasn't turning away from the Shekhin. He was turning away from his experience of God coming to visit him. And turning to them, was they were created in the divine image and he's greeting them to honor them and he's honoring God and God was not insulted. This was actually a sign that he's a truly God-fearing person. So someone who turns to God and ignores other people in the name of loving God, in a way is also not loving God. In the words that brought in Hayyem Yem, Chassidus brings, that not only do you love God, but you also love what God loves. And who does he love? His people. So Avram understood that and understood that was even a deeper way because he could have just had the pleasure of greeting God and that would have been for him good. Like they say, a tzaddik in pelts, a tzaddik in a fur coat when it's warm, when it's cold in the room, he puts on a fur coat, but only he's warm. A deeper level of what a real chassid is, he lights a fire, a fireplace. So everybody gets warm, including himself. This was the point. So it's a tremendous lesson in life about our relationship with God and with each other, and never should religion in any way compromise our love of other people, because when you love others, you're loving God. And maybe in a deeper way, the famous story with Alta Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, and they were, they were both studying, they were living in the same building, the same house, and a child began to cry, fell out of the crib. The Mitla Rebbe was so immersed and so engrossed in his learning, he did not hear the cry. The Alta Rebbe did and came and took care of the child. And later reprimanded the Mitla Rebbe for not hearing Kael Yelad Becha, the cry of a child. But he's learning Tayrit. Isn't that admirable? He couldn't hear, wouldn't hear anything, any distractions. No, but a child is crying and you're learning Tayrit, that means there's something missing. It's subtle because you're learning. He wasn't doing other things, God forbid. But it means you're learning Tayrit so you are benefiting. But in the process, others can be neglected. The importance of understanding that loving God and loving others is one and the same as Hillel told the potential convert when he said, tell me the entire Torah standing on one foot. The entire Torah is what? Don't do unto others that which you dislike being done to you. This is the entire Torah and everything else is commentary. But the Torah includes so much more than just interaction with others. But at the end of the day, even kosher, even Shabbos, even the mitzvahs between us and God, if they in some way are not about refining you, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 32 in Tanya, there's something missing. That's the whole center, the whole cornerstone and foundation is that it refines you, that makes spirit more powerful than matter which is the essence of love, as he explains there. That the spirit should be more powerful than the body, which allows us to transcend our own self, self and self-interest in loving other people. So the whole tale is for that purpose. And it goes hand in hand. When you see a dissonance where people may be more religious between them and God, and they ignore others or hurt others, there's something fundamentally missing, even in their relationship with God. It's not like they have something they're missing you know, one detail. They're actually missing the entire boat. So it's probably better than nothing, but it's important especially to mention today when we see people sometimes get caught up in their own religiosity, which even turns them against others in the condescension and judgment and uh, prejudices and so on. It goes antithetical to the whole essence, and this is a tremendous lesson from the first verse in this week's chapter. There are many more lessons, so I've discussed it in previous episodes, 
I'll cross-reference 87, 137, 186, and 232. Though I don't like to repeat and like to cross-reference, frankly, this particular message I must have mentioned before as well because it really speaks to me and I think it's so important in our generation especially to emphasize. So, so be it. It doesn't hurt to emphasize it more than once. Okay, with this, let me make the announcement that here we have chassidahsupply.com is a recently new website that we created specifically for this program and other Hasidic resources, applying them to our lives, exactly as the name suggests, chassidahsupply.com. So you have there all the archived episodes, now 281 episodes, and this one will be, it can be seen there as well. You could also embed it on any website, wherever you may be, because it's all done through YouTube. Um, you can also uh, access uh, timestamps in the YouTube version. Timestamps, you can go to the topic exactly that you're searching for. You also have their form, a completely anonymous form where you can write any question. Every question is welcome that I will address week after week uh, because there are many questions. Sometimes it takes a little while till I get to it, but it will be addressed. And as well as all the essays for the last five years of the annual popular My Life Chassidah Supplied and Essay Contest, as well as other resources on Samachavov and Ayin Beis, and continuously growing as we try to take Siddhis and apply it to our lives by addressing the deep, deepest ideas in contemporary and relevant and personal, psychological, emotional terms. With that, let me go to a few questions that are actually related to this week's chapter as well. Divine revelation to Avram. How did Avram know that it was God talking to him and not a hallucination? Maybe it was a hallucination. The same question can be asked about all the Nevi'im, all the prophets, and even Matan Torah. Is it possible that there was a phenomenal, a phenomenal natural occurrence and that it wasn't really what they thought it was? Or maybe it was a Malach or some other spirit? How can we know for sure that their interpretation of their experience was accurate? Okay, very good question. The truth is, I believe the Rambam and Meri Nebuchim may discuss it, as well as some other of the early Chikrim, like the Ikrim, Rabbi Yisuf Alba, and perhaps even Amunas Vedeus of the Rasag and the Kuzri. But, to be, but, I, but full disclosure, I did not really look it up there. If anybody has information, please share it with me. I will definitely look it up, but I want to, to because it was this week's chapter, let me address it in, in what is based on other ideas and things that we know about from different sources. But again, if someone has a specific source where it's discussed directly, please share it. And I will, of course, share it with the, the listening audience. A few things need to be made clear. Let's start to talk about Matan Torah and, uh, and Vim and Avramavino. We're not talking about little children here. We're not talking about people who are immature or impressionable and did not know what spirituality is. You're talking about people who are seasoned, experienced, skeptics even, who've seen the worst. Remember, Avram Avinu grew up in a home of idolaters. His father was an idol manufacturer. He, and, idol man, and idols was not just a childish thing. Idol was a sophisticated way of replacing God, as Maimonides Rambam explains in the beginning of Hilchus Avedah It had a whole spiritual dimension. And it had masters. And it had sorcerers. And it had all kinds of powers. Some were maybe not real, but some were real. The problem was they independently divorced themselves from God. So Avram was not unknown to him spiritual experiences. So once you're dealing with a person like that who's gone through a lot, 
We're talking about Yisrael. Yisrael was a master. He was a Koyan Midian. He was a master of all the wisdoms, including spiritual wisdoms. And then he said, Ati now I see that your God is greater than all the gods, meaning everything he's seen. We're talking about people who are professionals. Think of a scholar who's went through and is a master of the topic, and he says so, you can imagine it's coming from a very profound place and one that is resonating. You don't have to wait till this parsha. You can talk about the fact that Hashem tells Av- Avram to do the Akedah, which we'll speak about shortly, which is to bind his son and sacrifice him. How does he know it was God? Maybe it was a hallucination, and which would make it much easier because he had experience and he had gone for a search, Avram Avinu did, from his youngest age, seeking God. And when it came and became obvious to him what God is about, it resonated within. It wasn't just some, some con artist or charlatan coming and selling him something. Now, all human beings are human beings, even on Avram Avinu. So there's no question that he had criteria that made it very clear that this is coming from the true God. And the same thing with the Jews at Mount and Teda, the same thing with the prophets. These were people who were experienced. Remember, the Jews at Mount and Teda, though they had gone through a terrible bondage and exile in Egypt, they were children and grandchildren of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the Shvatim, the tribes, people who spent their entire lives studying, praying, meditating, connecting to the divine. So again, we're talking about people who were very, very um, familiar with what godliness is. Same question can be asked. How could they say Nasev and Nishma? As the Gemara speaks about this, the apostate asked the question, what kind of nation is this? A Russian nation? You give them a contract? You don't even read it? You just say, I accept it without looking at the, 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 what it says? The fine print? Do you know any Jew that would sign a contract without reading it? What's the answer? The answer is the Jews did not meet God at Sinai. They were already thought hundreds of years that they were dating, if you wish. They were very familiar with what God is about. And they witnessed it. They witnessed it in Egypt and witnessed it in the exodus from Egypt. So now the question is, you know, how long can you date? Are you ready to consummate? Are you ready to get engaged and get married? So if they were beginning the day, they could say, we, got to know, we need to get to know you. They knew him. They knew God. So now God says, time has come to consummate. Let's marry. Let's commit to each other formally, officially. After Avramavinu had already formally, had already informally, had already committed. So when you think of that backdrop, then it's a whole different story. Another additional point, especially by Martin Teda, it wasn't one person. It was millions of people. Which of course is also used by the Kuzuri as evidence, historical evidence. It wasn't one person said something happened to me and everyone believed him. They all witnessed and experienced something and no one denied it. So with Avram Avinu individually, you could say there was no one else there. And that's why the Torah's Takanat built on Avram's on the revelation of God, the divine revelation to Avram. It's built on Matan Teda. So that is the central picture of it. Now, of course, these people always, anything happened, they always second-guessed and questioned where is it coming from? Is this truly a divine voice? And they definitely had means and techniques and methods to test, make sure it's objectively true, not just something that they want to happen. As again, we're talking about a caliber of people who had honesty, transparency, integrity. We're not looking to come and sell something to anyone. And this, of course, is time-tested. Avram didn't sell it. So that means he wasn't on a gay bed over here. You know, someone comes to sell you that God appeared to me and, hey, he wants you to give me a million dollars to build my synagogue. You can be wary of that. So that's the overall answer to that question. Good. 
How do you explain the Akedah? In this week's Pasha, we also have the story of the Akedah. Closer to the end. I've never heard a rational explanation about the Akedah. How was it that Avram listened to a voice telling him to kill his son? Isn't it Yareg Val Yavir? Yareg Val Yavir means you're not allowed to kill someone. You have to die, die before you kill somebody else. Three sins that you cannot die, you cannot die, that you cannot, you have to die before you do that. Idolatry, murder, and, um, and Novei Dezara. Idol, idolatry, murder, <laughs> can't believe I don't remember the third one. Okay. Come to me in a moment. Is it possible that Avram failed the test, but because the Torah doesn't discuss negative things about Tzadikim, it says that he passed it? Okay. Starting with the second question, oh, Gilearais. <laughs> Gilearais, which means incest or inappropriate sexual relations. Those are the three. Just had a moment blank. Okay, relevant to us, of course, is however is murder. So, is it possible? No, of course he didn't know. The Torah is telling us an untruth. If the Tate is Tate Semis, that's not even a possibility. So I don't even I want to even entertain that question. If it, if he did fail the test, I'll just use even if you go with this logic, then why does the Tate have to tell us the whole story altogether? So if you believe the Tate, you believe the Tate. You can't believe half of it. So there's no question. It actually happened. Let me compound the question and respond. There's many different explanations on that Kedah, but there's one that always sp- speaks, everyone has their question, answer that speaks to you. This one, I think, is a very one that I've used many times in explaining the idea, but it's not by no means the only explanation. In the same Parsha, this week's Parsha, we read how Hashem, God tells, through the Malach, tells Avram that Sdoim, the wicked city of Sdom, is going to be destroyed. Now, what's Avram's reaction? You would think Finally, we've all had the age-old question, why the wicked prosper and the good suffer, and the righteous suffer. Finally, they're getting what the, what's due to them, the wicked city of Zdom. So Avram should have celebrated, or at least quietly said, finally. What does he do? He goes to pray for them on their behalf. A whole chapter, just to say how he's praying. He's challenging God. Hashafet kolodetz le'yasem mishpat. The judge of the entire universe is not going to do judgment, people will say. Maybe there's some righteous people. And it goes back and forth. As a matter of fact, God even has a consideration not to tell Avram his plans, because he knew Avram would challenge him. But then he does say, I'm not going to conceal my plan. So in the same chapter, you see how, Moish, how Avram Avinu, Moish Nevin, goes and, def- and challenges God, wicked people, that they shouldn't be killed. And then in the same breath, almost in the same breath, we read his own son, an innocent boy, a 37-year-old boy, you could say, an innocent person who is not in any way deserving. He doesn't challenge God. Does that make any sense? So if Avram Avinu was, so to speak, a tough guy, an aggressive person, and he's always looking to Gvura, Gvura Digdush even, meaning discipline from a holy place, then you could say he's not a compassionate. So fine, so he... God says, do these things, he just does it. But he challenges God. We see his chesed. We see his compassion. Where's his compassion for his only son? As bincha, sichitcha, asher ahafta, your son, your only son, the one you love. Where's the compassion? Why doesn't he challenge God and say, why? 
What do you want from this? So clearly Avram Avinu, as I mentioned before, knew much more about God than we can imagine. It wasn't suddenly God appeared to him and kill your son, sacrifice your son, bind your son, which is key. It says bind your son, Akedah. Had it just come out of nowhere, yeah, it'd be a big question. Avram Avinu suddenly is doing such a thing, goes against human nature, goes against God's law even, to kill somebody, your own child. But he had a very deep experience with God. He was already tested nine times. This was the tenth test. So you can test our real tests. So he had a relationship with God. So he knew if God is asking for that, it's coming from a benevolent place. He may not have understood why, or maybe he may have, we don't know. But he knew it was not killing. He knew it was not a sacrifice in vain. There was a deeper reason for it. And he just followed, and he did it quickly. He didn't procrastinate, as the Alter Rebbe says in the Geras so what, what, how do you explain that? And as I said, it's very boilet, very glaring that something's going on here. So here's one answer. One answer is this. We see the end of the story that it was never meant to be. So anyone comes and brings the story as an example of human sacrifice, God forbid, no. Not here and not in any case of human sacrifice, God forbid. Traitor is completely, completely abhors such a concept. So why was it even a consideration? The end, Hashem comes and says, no, do not do this. Malach comes, don't do this. And Avraham Avinu replaces Yitzchak with a set, that with, with, a, the, with a, the deer, the animal that he brings as an offering instead of Yitzchak. So one of the explanations is unbelievable explanation. We parents, whoever was a parent, blessed to be a parent, we try our best to bring up our children. We're not perfect. We sometimes can hurt our children. We sometimes do things misinformed or sometimes due to our own mistakes, our own errors, sometimes deliberate, less deliberate. Sometimes we're out of control. How do you assure that a parent love a child in the best possible way? When you realize that the child is not yours, it's God's child. You don't love your child only because of biological connection. Because that could be a selfish connection that could actually end up being hurting your child. We think... I own my child. My child's an extension of me. My child embarrasses me. Many parents say, what are you doing to my reputation? We want things for our children because it makes us look good or because we think that's the right standard. And in the process, trample on a child's needs. How do you prevent that? By recognizing that's not your child. You were given a child to guard and protect and to bring up like a gardener to take care of the child and nurture the child but the child belongs to God. And if you don't know that, human error and human mortality, human flaws can end up hurting children. What Hashem wanted to achieve here was to show Avram Avinu, Yitzchak, you love your son Yitzchak, Bincha, Yechidcha, your only son, you love him, yes. Let's make this love deeper than human love. Let's make it a divine love. And how can you do that? The only way is to go out of your comfort zone. Because no father would ever even consider such a behavior of even considering hurting his child. No, you have Ramavinu, the compassionate of Ramavinu, the one that loves your child, and you're a loving person. I am God, and I am telling you to do this. And what happened as a result? That now Ramavinu came to appreciate that his love for his child is not just his, it's because God gave him this child. And he proved it by saying, I'm ready to forego my biological, natural inclination and love of my child for what God wants, the God who gave me this child. It has to be for the good, and it was for the good. It ended up being for the good. That what? Now, this love was infused 
The biological love remained, but it was now infused with the eternity of a divine element because he was ready to listen to God and go against his own paternal instinct. Had the story never happened, Avram would have continued loving Yitzchak, but we would never know the extent of it and how much he was ready to love and how deep it went that now has become divine and now the story is forever immortalized. Not just when we read it in this week's chapter. Every day we say it in Davening. We cite it. Rosh Hashanah, it's the reading of the Torah. Again and again, because we invoke that event because we want to infuse the love of our children with the love of God. And the only way to do it was by saying, let's see if he's ready to deprive himself of his biological love. Go out of your comfort zone. You don't love your child just because you love him and therefore, I love him, so whatever I say is going to go. No, you love him because God loves him and God gave him to you. You are the biological caretaker. That's one explanation on this topic. I'm sure more. And uh, let's move on with that. And, uh, okay. This is somewhat of a follow-up. Last week was Lech Lecha, and I spoke about that message. So we have a questioner asking, how can one find what their personal Lech Lecha challenge is? As explained, the is that everybody needs to go out of their comfort zone. So I felt since we're coming from Lech Lecha, I don't want to wait till next year to talk about it. Let's just say a few words about that. Well, it follows straight from the Akeda. The Akeda, of course, is an extreme version. Comfort zones sound beautiful, but they are the force, maybe the most single powerful force that stops us from growing. I'm comfortable. I'm fine. Comfort zone. You read chapter 15 in Tanya, powerful chapter, about avode and loy avode. What means to serve? What means not to serve? Even if you do something beautiful, but you're doing it out of routine and pattern and habit, it's a comfort zone. In the times of the Talmud, the Alter Rebbe cites from the Gemara Menachis in chapter 15 in Tanya, there was the custom to study something a hundred times, to review a hundred times. Who does that? But that was the custom. So it's called loya vada. You didn't serve because it's a routine. That's what everybody does. The hundred and first time, that one extra time outweighs all the hundreds. But you can't get to the one without the hundred. But why? Because you've made a qualitative shift. You've gone beyond your regular routine. So Lech Lecha is essentially that. Personalizing that can be applied to every area of life, whether it's study of Torah, to go beyond a little extra minute, or qualitatively deeper, another class. Prayer, of course, the same thing, a little more quality, a little more focus. Aveda Shebelev, a little more Bechol Ma'itcha. And of course, the third pillar, Gemilas Chasadim, stuck charity. To go and give a little more than you've given, not just the regular. Add, that's why we always increase. It's going out of the comfort zone, which in turn opens up new channels. Because if you do what you did, you'll get what you got. You want more? Do more. And that's true in every area in life. So that's one way of explaining the Lech Lecha, to go out of your own comfort zone. Another way I've discussed in previous years is to go out of your subjectivity. Three forms of subjectivity trap us. One is our natural self-interest our natural subjectivity. Number two is our parental influences, Beis Avicha. And number three is Artsacha, which is social pressure. The people around us, peer pressure, and so on. All these things can distort us really discovering, Ela Eretz Asher discover who you really are. Ereka not goes on the land, but goes on you. Because as long as you're under the influence of your own subjectivity, or parents, or peers, and social 
Maybe you're doing it because of them. You don't know who you are. So Lech Lech is a self-discovery journey in that sense. Those are a few points. And with that, let's move to the next question. Since we talked about parents and children, and it's a vital point about parents and children, here's a question on the topic of children and parents. What can a child do if he's having issues with his parents and they don't respond? What would you suggest to a young bocher, a young man, which felt from a very young age his parents aren't helping him out, not showing love, ignoring his issues, not doing acts of service for him, favoring, favoring other siblings over him, punishing him for no reason, father not being a dugmachaya, a living example. Kids is, kids is dying to leave home. The kid is dying to leave home as he doesn't feel comfortable living at home. The, the kid tried bringing it up to his parents, but father just makes fun of the boy for asking such a question. So the bocher gave up trying even trying to mend the relationship. Never comes to topics like this, you'll hear the same thing from me before I get to the actual topic. This is a narrative coming from whoever wrote this, whether it's the son or it's a friend or someone else. And every narrative always has more to it. I'm not questioning the truth of this narrative, but what would the parents say if they were sitting here and heard this? And they, and they were speaking to an objective person like myself. What would they say? Do they have a different perspective? Do they have to see the child differently? Is the child accurately really conveying? Again, I'm not invalidating, God forbid, and not in any way dismissing or silencing the sentiments involved, but to, grow, to actually give good advice, you need to know the facts as much as possible. Part of the fact is this boy, this bocher, feels this way. That's a given. I don't think he's writing to me if, he doesn't, if someone doesn't feel this way. But the question is, what else is going on? Now, it's very possible. It's exactly this. The parents are really not there neglecting him for some reason, prejudicing him and prejudices against him and are, and are hurting him. So all this needs to be determined and very difficult to do in a program like this where it's one way. I don't know who wrote this and I don't want to know and I don't know all the details and context. You, with that must be addressed. At the same time, let me say a few points considering that. I would not leave any stone unturned as a child, as a bocher, Go to siblings, go to friends, find a way, get somebody to communicate on your behalf to your parents. And they may make fun of you, but someone's serious in a discreet way, in a respectful way. We're not talking about something that will embarrass because parents may be embarrassed by that. But I would not leave any stone unturned. And I wonder whether that was tried. And if it wasn't, why not? So try that. Now you could say the parents ignore that. They didn't want to come speak to them, say it's none of your business. Okay. Well, you have to do everything in your power to do what you have to do, to see if you can reach. The second thing is, is to get people involved, get person involved who knows the family, who knows the parents, and they may have advice. They may actually say, these are parents you can't get through, they have a lot of issues. Again, I don't want to make that conclusion and become, be presumptuous, but that may be possible. It may be possible, on the other hand, that there may be a way in. There may be a rov, a mashpia, somebody they know. Now, is it the responsibility of the bocher to do all this? The truth is the parents should. But if it's really a problem, you can't just divorce your parents. Now, look, if at the end of the day, everything you do doesn't work, I'll get to that last, you still have your life to live. And I know people grew up in very abusive homes and they built lives. I just don't want to go there because that's the last resort. So I would do everything possible to reach to them. If you can't do it, through others. Sometimes older siblings can do it. And again, it's not to shame anyone, it's to get them to the table. Let's address issues. Now, very often there's new, new, new revelations come out when you start digging. 
I have situations where events have happened that are not talked about. When that child was young, he may have seen something. A mother and father may not have liked what he saw. There may be other things that have happened that the parents and the family keep secret. There's a lot of options. And from experience, I can tell you that we, I have no clue. But with this smoke, this fire, which means you need to look at everything and see what's going on because it could also be affecting other members of the family. So, and finally, if all else fails, you still have your life to live, find healthy influences, talk to mashpia, talk to someone that, can understand, that understands you and get guidance to, to find your journey in life. If you're a bocher, figure out how to go through school, finish at the right point, get married, build your life and family. And that's ultimately, you control your destiny. As much as your challenges may have been, even if your parents are not there for you. But again, that's not been established, and that needs to be established. Okay. Now reiterate again, parents can hurt children. I'm not going to go accuse parents every time something's happening. But as I said before with Avram Avinu, it's vital. It's not about you as a parent. It's about God. And that's also what the Rebbe said to an individual, how not to hurt his children, not to hit his children. He was physically abusive to his children. These are not your children. These are God's children. And parents must know that sanctity. Same time, children have to respect their parents. And we've spoken about that as well. And uh, I want to refer to several episodes, episode 13 and 14, 64, 120, and 199. Next. This is one about social anxiety. Let's see here. It's not a short question. How can I deal with social anxiety? Social anxiety. Two, it's a, two, two questions I have on this topic. And it's a topic we've addressed in the past. So let's go. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, you're, you're the top on my podcast list, and I greatly benefit from the way you explain and put life into perspective along, along with your vast insight. Thank you so much. My question revolves around the topic of social anxiety. I'm a 20-year-old firm girl who has been through the system. The last few years, I've been struggling with intense social anxiety, and it has gotten worse in the last year or so. I want so much to be that girl who has a steady job, hangs out with friends after work, and is looking for a shidduch, a match. On the outside, I am that girl, but most people can't see the huge internal struggle I'm dealing with. I'm almost every, in almost every social situation, I am constantly on guard and sweating, heart beating, worried I'm going to be asked about myself. I'm afraid to open up and even more afraid I have nothing important going on in my life to share. I constantly feel like I've been doing more interesting things in order for me to have stuff to say. So no matter what I add into my day to be more interesting, I still can't think of how and what to say in order to just connect in a satisfying way with somebody. Everything I do, I say, it's not me. I don't enjoy it. The thing is, with all this, on the outside, I hold myself with poise and nobody would know this. I have social skills and etiquette, and I'm extremely in tune with myself and people as well. I know just what to say to, I know what, just what to say to everyone. I can carry on small talk, but once it gets past the point of small talk and actually getting to know me, I can't seem to go there or just casual Shabbos meal conversations. I feel like I have nothing to share and I go blank. I don't like holding a job because I feel this way around coworkers and I feel like I'm bringing social awkwardness and uncomfortable feelings to them as well, even if they, as well, to them as well, even if they think I'm nice and normal. 
I almost feel bad that on the outside I look normal and they thought that they were getting a cute co-worker, but really I can't seem to break in and be one of them who talks about anything under the sun and whatever's on their mind and makes friends with each other. When I go to work, everyone is known for something and I know about their life, but it always bothers me that I'm not like that. I'm very comfortable with my parents and some family members with, and with them, I'm funny at feel, and feel at ease. I crave social connection and relationships, but it's so hard for me to have one because it's hard for me to just relax and be. I feel like it's so hard to get to know me. If I hang out with friends and they say, that's new, how you've been feel like, what's new, how you've been, I feel like I have nothing to say or quickly try and think of the best answer while being in panic mode. When I go on shidduch dates, it's so hard for me to connect when I'm sweating, not in the present moment and uncomfortable and in this mode. Of, of, of putting on the show. I feel so unsatisfied. When I'm talking to most people, so many things go through my mind during the conversations. I can't keep track what we are talking about. I want so much to get married. I have a family. I know I have so much to give to someone and I'm very emotionally wise, but I don't know how to bring this out when I'm just so uncomfortable in my own skin. Please share your insight and advice on this. It would mean so much to me. Really appreciate it and thank you for inspiring myself and so many. P.S. I did get help the last year for this and it boiled down to keeping busy, accepting this is who I am without judgment. I am still struggling. I am still struggling though. I want to be able to sit at the Shabbos table and feel un- and not feel uncomfortable or worried. A friend will ask me what's new and I'll panic. Thank you. I read the entire thing because I received many letters and I deal with many people and I felt that there are others that may be, um, it may be valuable for them to hear what this person's feeling and going through. And of course, my response that I'll share now. A second question on this topic is social awkwardness. What does Torah Chassidus say about social awkwardness? Thank you so much for your insightful weekly videos. Okay. As always, it's case by case, and it would much be easy, much easier and more probably productive to speak to you face-to-face or on the phone. But let me say this because I know many people struggle with these issues. And not all are ready to speak to someone. Not all are ready to uh, publicize it. And I say publicize, I don't mean going in the streets, but I mean to feel that uh, they have confidence, confidence and trust. As I mentioned before, with this smoke, this fire, I would like to go through the list of some of the called the usual suspects, quote unquote, of what could cause a person to be this way. Of course, there's always the issue, there's always the possibility of something medical, some chemical imbalance, something that may need a professional help, and maybe even medication, even though I'm not a medication guy, but the fact is that if we have that, that can help relieve people's anxiety, that may be possible. But it's also very likely, and, very, and something that needs to be explored, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say very likely, explored other possibilities. Usually this type of discomfort is a result, very often, of having an experience, or more than an experience, that caused this awkwardness. Because a natural, healthy child, even though we're all no, no one of us are perfect, grows up, has friends, and is pretty comfortable. Why would someone be uncomfortable with others if something happens, if some way you're violated, and this can be physically, emotionally, sexually, in other ways, and you lose trust in someone? It could be mild, it could be intense. And that causes a certain fear and insecurity in social settings. It's interesting, you say with your parents, you're well, doing well. Okay, I would explore that as well, what that means, how far, how, can you speak to them about this? Is there anyone you can speak to about this? That is, of course, a first step because maybe you, some memories will come up. Maybe 
it'll strengthen you because you've expressed it. Remember, there's also the fear of the fear itself, the fear of looking bad. Why would you look bad? Because that's how you think of yourself, a low self-esteem. So these are some of the usual suspects. There may be more. It could be bullying, a result of bullying. It could be a result of other things, some unresolved issues that with parents or with friends or with strangers that you yourself may not yet fully be fully aware of. But the, there are symptoms here that indicate we should be looking at that. So that's why it's hard to advise what to do because depending on what the cause is, that would be addressed in the proper way. But I will say this. The way to deal with, the way to build trust in yourself, the way to overcome the panic and fears is to do it slowly, to find friends, even one, two, three, that you can trust and talk to. You start slowly. Once you develop trust and confidence and you see people who won't judge you, that builds more confidence that allows you then to engage with other people. To just go to a party is going to be difficult in this type of circumstances. So I think the above, above all is to create small relationships. When I say small, individual relationships. See what happens. Are you, do you have any friend that's close to you? And if not, why can't you find one? And there are good friends that, will, that you can confide in. Obviously, you have, they have to earn your trust. Same thing with siblings or family members. So these are all suggestions that I think piecemeal, if you do it step by step, it makes it easier. Now, obviously, you're at an age where you should be dating already, at 20 years old. So you go dating, you'll say it's a cash 22, I don't, I'm going to panic. I would say that I would encourage dating because I think to learn how to swim, you have to jump into the water. You can't just constantly see yourself as a pariah that I'm not capable of it. But maybe have a coach, maybe have a friend, someone that um, can help you along the way and hold your hand that you can discuss this with. This is some basic principles and uh, I, my heart goes out to you, but know this. You can overcome this. Every human being deserves inner confidence, self-esteem, security, and have the courage to engage. And therefore, I give you my vote of confidence. There's no question if you apply yourself and have the right people, you can overcome this. And I've seen it been overcome and grown to a far more socially comfortable person with people you meet and so on. But you have to do the work. And that's some of the thoughts I had. So as far as what Torah Chassidus say, I just said what Torah Chassidus say. There's more on the topic, and I discussed it in episodes 265 specifically. And there's actually one of the essays submitted in this year's contest, essay, episode reviewed in episode 273, that also addresses this topic. Okay. Good. If anybody wants to weigh in on this, you have other thoughts, you've gone through this, and what you have done, Please, it's, no, nothing is more powerful than hearing from someone that's gone through such an experience and learned to grow from it. What did you do? How did you handle it? That gives tremendous strength and credibility to those that went through something, that are going through social anxiety. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next question. Stuck and upset. What can I do about feeling stuck in my life? So this is a two-part question. I'm angry. I feel stuck in a Chabad life. I have five children. I'm a, I'm a shlucha, and I find it all overwhelming. My house is chaotic, and I have no desire to pull up my socks to create structure and harmony. Every week I kvetch. It's a monthly mood cycle happening weekly. I feel fake and stuck. I have to maintain my externalities of my life, but I'm so stuck in forcing it all the time. I crash way too often and just force myself to keep going. 
don't know what my question is, just feeling stuck. Part two, same person wrote a little later. Read my letter that I, regarding the letter I just sent in, I want to add, I listened to your recent talk on happiness that you have to the Beis Rivka girls and was particularly taken by your quote from the Rebbe not delving into Tsaris problems, but just empowering that you can get past the challenges. Thank you. So there you go. You've answered your own question. So first of all, this uh, talk that I gave is online. You can access it, I believe, on the chassidahsupply.com um, website. And it's also on our YouTube channel of Chassidah Supplied YouTube channel, uh, My Life YouTube channel. And uh, if you don't find it there, it should be posted shortly, this topic. So you're answering your own question. It's exactly right. Again, I don't know the details, and I'm sure there's more to the story than what meets the eye, but I will say this. We all have two voices. One voice that's negative, that sees the challenges, that sees the difficulties, that sees the pains. But there's another voice, the beautiful voice, the voice that's created in the divine image, the voice of hope, the voice of optimism, the voice of transcendence, going beyond yourself. So as difficult as this may be, the key thing is not to dwell and immerse yourself in your own, wallow in your own, in your own fears, in your own pain. I don't know why you're stuck. I don't know why you feel that way, and I'm going to address that in a moment. But I will say, the first thing is you've got to get yourself involved in something positive, not just busy. Good things. You're a slucha. Is there nothing good that you can report? People you work with and so on. And that's what you need to reinforce and strengthen, and that will counter the negative. Because the only way to fight darkness is with light. Now, as far as the reasons, that's the thing that really is complicated here, because how am I supposed to answer that? I don't know what the reasons are. Is, I would ask questions, is your marriage healthy and intact? How's your relationship with your children? How's your relationship with yourself, with your parents? What's going on? As I said, we need to look at the usual suspects. What's causing you to feel stuck? Have you always felt this way? What changed? So without answers to that, you can imagine you can't, you can't give a diagnosis and definitely not a treatment plan and advice if not, no, without knowing that. But let's assume the stuck is some type of stage in your life. You know, you're going through routines, maybe things are boring. The question then is, what support do you have? Is your husband there for you? Are friends, siblings, family, others, community members there for you? Can you call upon them? Can you do, get involved in a project that you really enjoy, a hobby? Maybe go swimming, maybe spa, maybe exercise. Something that you feel proud of yourself at the end of the day. That's how we get unstuck. So I don't know the level of the stuckness. Now, if it's one that's maybe clinical, form of depression, you may need a medical professional. So all this needs to be explored and determined in order to answer the question more fully. But I think I've given enough instruction of how to proceed. And as always, if you want to follow up, please do so. And I say this to all the questioners and to anyone listening to the program. Next question, unrelated. I will say there are programs before that I've spoken about this, but I see I didn't cross-reference. Not sure why. Talking in shul. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what can we do about talking in shul? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly broadcast. I often listen and really enjoy it. I'm wondering what can be done regarding talking in shul. I know that it says in Chassidus and Halacha about not doing it. Absolutely. 
famous letter from the Al-Tareb, Al-Gewald, Gewald. But what does it say about how to change it? It is impossible to take away a person's free choice, but what options does it leave for those that want to daven properly? It seems that everyone knows it's wrong, but very few are willing to do anything. Worst of all is that many Rabbonim are often the ones encouraging it. Some even act as if it is a mitzvah. It is just shocking. And if anyone dares protest the talking, they are scorned at by the Spitz Chabad. Spitz means the, the pointed Chabad. Spitz Chabad means like see themselves at the pinnacle of Chabad, the ultimate Chabad. What to do? Regards. Okay, well, there's no question it's halachen. Hepech hatere, hepech achsidis, hepech everything. Davening, you're spending with three melech, malcham, lochem, akodesh baruchu, and it should be between you and God and nothing else. Unfortunately, there are shuls and there are people who are lax about this. So how do you address that? And what should one do? So let's first establish the standard. The standard is it should be unacceptable, zero tolerance. But on a realistic level, what should you do? Start yelling at people who are speaking? Will that work? I, I remember a letter someone wrote to the Rebbe, and he actually shared it with me. He gave me the letter that the Rebbe, he was just beginning to become going to shul. So he had a problem because he was a very impatient person, and he was very not tolerant of people speaking in shul. There was someone right near, sitting right in front of him that would speak in shul. So he asked the Rebbe what to do. Should he go to another shul? Should he yell at this guy? What should he do? The Rebbe answered him this. The Rebbe said, next time you see someone speak in shul, think to yourself, look how beautiful a Jew, even a Jew who speaks in shul wants to come to shul. So I just want to share that. This, of course, no way is this a license and justifying speaking. But in this case, he needed to hear that because he needed to do what he has to do. And it was not the job for him to yell at the people because it was more about him working on himself and not being impatient. But speaking in shul is absolutely halachically, and the Alter Rebbe writes about it, and unfortunately, it's one of the things people are lacking. So, like all problems that become, I don't call it an epidemic, but are everywhere, not everywhere, but many places, the Rebbe even once said one of the things you can learn from the conservative reform is that people don't speak in shul, that people have an etiquette in a shul. So the Rebbe said, I spoke about it a number of uh, months ago, probably. So what we can say is the following. We have to bring this to the attention of our children and to ourselves. You start with yourself. You have to make sure you go to shul, you don't speak, even if someone speaks with you. So you have to be a living example. That's a place that all of us can begin. We don't surrender and say, oh, everybody's doing it, I'll also do it. So anyone who really cares about this has to begin with themselves, with their family, with their children. We go to shul, we're going to speak to Hashem. After davening, there's another story. People talk, say hello, and so on. Regarding other people, like anything, if you see something that's not right, do we go yell at them? Do we go become disciplinarians? Do we, is that our job to judge them? But if you can do it in a, with a person in a gentle way, and you feel that it will be a positive influence, by all means, go for it. But that's again case by case. So like all issues of this nature, you have to do it piecemeal, step by step, Start with yourself, see who you could influence in a positive way. And uh, if you have the influence over a shul, let's say you're a part of a, uh, a mem- uh, you're part of a shul board or, or faculty and so on, yes, you can say, let's talk about this, let's bring it up, let's bring it to the attention of our members and our community. And uh, why not? Like in anything, you want, you want to make things better. These are my responses. I don't have anything dramatic to say, some magic pill. 
the Rabbeim, even Al Rebbe, when he wrote those sharp words about speaking, when he hears people speaking, and the negative, and the real, really sharp words, if the Rabbi Alter Rebbe didn't have an impact with those words, then I'm definitely not going to come up with better words. So it all comes down to finding ways to influence people for the better. And the same is true, frankly, for other things. If you see someone speaks Lashon Hara, I'm not talking about in Shul even. In general, how do you deal with that? A lot of people do that. So we have to feel we're not part of the problem, but part of the solution. That's essentially what I'm saying. Okay. Next question. Okay. We're going to do some follow-up now. The follow-up is uh, episodes 280 and 281. And uh, we'll do that, yes. In episode 280, I spoke about how to keep the holidays from being boring. It was a post-holiday works, uh, 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 program. So just feedback on the last episode 280. Someone had asked about ways to keep the holidays from being boring. We have a small group on Facebook, Ladies Who Learn, for Jewish studies, and many of us used your 60 days guide every day. Tremendous feedback from women who said that this deeper understanding that your guide gives added tremendously to their overall experience and made it all that much more meaningful. Also, women who have used your book for years have also expressed that way. Personally, I feel, I also feel it's added so much for me as a companion to this extraordinary time and opportunities, an opportunity for personal cleansing and growth. Judaism offers such a great gift, it should not be boring if approached with wonder and an opportunity to tap into its potential. Thank you for the guide and all that you do. Well, thank you for your kind words. Those of you not familiar with that, Guide. It's called 60 Days, a spiritual guide to the high holidays used by many. It's become, uh, I would say, there's almost a cult following behind the people. I have groups all over the world that follow this journey, and I am surprised and humbled by that. Um, essentially, the theme is that the way one does not get bored, is, as I discussed back then, is to recognize the extraordinary within the ordinary, to see that every detail of our lives is brimming and filled with pulsating energy waiting to be released. In the words of the Kabbalists and the Hasidic masters, sparks, divine sparks, waiting to be freed, where they're trapped in the food we eat, in the work we do, in the places we travel to, our homes, everything. And when you see it that way, then everything becomes an opportunity, an exciting opportunity, I should add, for turning this world into a divine home. So thank you for that. Another follow-up was Kiddush Clubs. Okay, so I got quite a few feedback on that one. Uh, much of it was positive. There was also a little critique, which I shall read briefly now. First of all, someone writes, I commend you for taking on this topic, and definitely you will not necessarily become politically uh, correct, and not being politically correct, and knowing that many people will not necessarily uh, give you brownie points for your attitude, but I commend you for your strong stand on the topic. Um, another person wrote, I listened closely because this is a topic that's close to my heart. But I want to ask you, um, even though many of the kids clubs are not, we'll not call them holy, but it's innocent people getting together to be nice and, calm and, and beautiful with each other on a Shabbos. 
Yes, maybe it shouldn't be done in the middle of davening. But why is it such a terrible thing in that sense? And finally, another one writes, I was surprised by your strong stand. You usually are far more balanced, and here you are pretty adamant. So let me answer that all in one shot. Obviously, this complements what I said back then, last week's episode on 281. Yes, um, it is true. We always have to take a balanced approach. But there are things that have to be stated for the record, and then you can talk about balance. The Rebbe did make a gzera. Not I, not you. He made a gzera, said, do not drink more than four small cups. We can't change that. And we're not looking to change it. And we embrace it like anything the Rebbe said. So what am I supposed to do? Take a weak stand on that? The whole point of Chassidus applied is to convey the Rebbe's and the Rabbeim's attitude to things, not our own. I'm not defending myself. I'm just saying that we need to state that. What is the standard? Now there's a second point which I can address in a follow-up. What do we do practically? I also said then, is it the worst possible sin? But I didn't want to say it in a way that minimizes what the Rebbe said about it. Is it the worst thing? No, there are, I know many more worse things going on in our community, in our shuls even, and so on. But it is necessary to stand, what is the standard? Because we don't measure which is a bigger thing and a smaller thing. Then comes the practical side of it. If you're part of those going to Kiddush Plot, this is your, week, your place of release. Well, once a week you have relief, you go there. You need to know that it may be innocuous, it may sound innocent, but people have been hurt by alcohol. You may not be that one, and there may not, maybe your group not, but there have people been hurt, people have died because of it. Alcohol is not a thing to tamper with. And there's others watching you, and you never know what they're going to take out from it. So that's why I go back to the Rebbe. The Rebbe made a standard. I'm not going, I'm not on a witch hunt where I'm going to go to every shul and say, close down your kiddush club. This is my platform. Actually, it's easy. I just sit here in front of a camera and I pontificate. But with all humor aside, the point I'm making here is we want, we, the whole purpose of this program is to what are our standards? What's a healthy standard? And then, of course, there are things that we are lenient in or we overlook and so on. We talked about things like television or sports and so on. There's a standard. And then you have to be prudent and practical who you're dealing with. If I was in the shul and there's a kiddush club, am I going to go down and storm the heavens? No, I would see. Maybe I would find an opportunity to say something. Because you want to be productive. You don't want to just sound like a critique, critic. You know, I've seen shuls where the rabbi tries to do something. It doesn't always work. So I think that the first knowing the standards is not a contradiction to the attitudes, how we apply ourselves to deal with these issues. So that's the combination of taking a stand, strong stand, and then let's be practical. This is the, the, the standard. Now let's figure out how to do this. And I understand the social side to it, but maybe there are other ways to do it in a ways that are more acceptable and also more aligned with how the Rebbe would want us to do it. You know, there are kiddushim that happen after davening. That, first of all, is far more in the right time. And even there, it shouldn't be ahulanke. We just go start indulging and drinking and drinking and drinking. Okay. Another follow-up on payas. Last week I spoke about long payas, short payas. And I mentioned the letter of the Rebbe, Chelechof, where the Rebbe says clearly that he, I have not seen Chabad long payas, as well, Adrab, on the, on the contrary. Okay. I'll just add to that, I heard a story once that Rabbi um, uh, Zalik Slonim, from Israel, who is a grandchild of the Mitle Rebbe, Mitle Rebbe sent his daughter um, uh, that, that with the, who married a Slonim to Hebron and then the Yerushalayim family. So there was the Slonims that came from those families. Abzalik Slonim was one of these Chassidim. He came to visit Labavitch once. What was it? Rostov? Not sure. The Rebbe Rashab. And he had long payas. Or not very long, but payas that went 
some extent. And this is a story I heard. I've never seen a source that the Shrebets and Shtenesorazok said, we don't go that way. And they say he cut his payas after that. I have to verify this, but I heard this. So the Rebbe says, Adarab. So I hear, I've received a few letters saying, seemingly, that that's, but the Friedrich Rebbe did have long payas. I've heard that the Friedrich Rebbe's payas were seen to have fallen from under his yarmulke. It is possible to imagine that the Alter Rebbe also kept his payas on top of his head. Rabbi Leibel Groner, on a uh, video, tells the following, that he remembers in Tov Shin Aleph Yom Kippur, the first year the Friedrich Rebbe came to America, Yom Kippur, the first Yom Kippur in America, that when he was asked, that Friedrich Rebbe asked them to turn him around when they sang Napoleon's March, Yom Kippur, the end of Yom Kippur, and he says, we saw the Friedrich Rebbe's long pay on one side fall down from, from his yarmulke. He also says his father, who was Zeche, to do the tahara of the Friedrich Rebbe's head, said that he specifically saw long payas under the yarmulke. So that's Rabbi Groner's testimony. Uh, frankly, I accept what he's saying, but it does not, it contradicts what the Rebbe says in that letter and what we know about this topic based on the Arizal that I discussed last week, who cut his payas. The question is where he cut it exactly, but definitely did not let it mingle with the beard. So I understand the answer is that it was under the yarmulke, so it didn't mingle with the beard. But it doesn't say that that's what the Marizal did. And as I, did, I said, the Rebbe says, Adarab. So how to reconcile it, I don't really have an answer. If this is true, accurate, I'm sure we can find ways to explain it. As far as the Alter Rebbe goes, yeah, you can speculate anything. You know, we don't have any source to say he had payas under his yarmulke. What we have is we see the, the two bushy so-called payas right here above, above the air, but we don't see anything hanging down. So that's about that follow-up. One more thing about Expanding 770 we spoke about last week. Thank you for answering the questions regarding Expanding 770. I found it very helpful, very useful, and as always, very candid. I did want to get clarification on one part. When the Rebbe spoke about not changing where the Shver stood and ate, is that downstairs in the large shul or upstairs? And does that mean that, how, that however it is now can only be added on and not, and not changed? The Rebbe said clearly he means the large shul downstairs where he davened, and obviously also upstairs. That is why it became very clear that not to change the 770 where the Rebbe davened, only to add to it. In other words, not to rebuild what we see right now, but only to add north and south. But the 770, especially the original part, that goes, goes more toward, um, toward uh, Mairiv, the west side, meaning away from Kingston, and goes to upstairs 770, that's where the Rebbe was, and the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, and that should not be touched. So it was only about expanding it to Union Street and as much as you can to Eastern Parkway. That's the clarification. Now, here's a Chassidus question, and then we'll do the essays. Chassidus question. I submitted a question about how to deal with... Well, let me just sum it up. Uh, this Chassidus question is, what is the difference between a divine soul rooted in the divine name and all other things that are rooted in the divine name? So we'll clarify when we read. I submitted a question asking how to deal with separation when all is from the same source, meaning everything comes from God, so separation. Asking especially why the Friedrich Rebbe mentions that the Neshama of Ayid comes from Hashem's name. Learning Tanya chapter 38 clearly teaches that it all comes from Hashem's name. Yudke Vavke. Another questioner, which is similar to this question, so I'll throw that in. Shalom of Racham. I've asked a few questions to you about Agdus Hashem, divine unity. 
All of the answers and explanations have added a lot to my understanding. Thank you very much. I was learning a mime describing the unique Knesset, unique unity, Knesset Yisrael, the community of Israel, the Shamas Yisrael, has over other parts of creation, saying that in their source, quote, in their source, the Yidna are unified due to coming from the same source in, in Hashem Echad. End of quote. What is the Chiddush of this unity Knesset Yisrael has? Isn't all of creation in their source all unified? What difference about our unity? It almost sounds like the same question. Maybe it came from the same person. But so be it. It's an excellent question and a klotz kasha in a way. But it's also the same question you can ask to broaden the question. When we say Enoid Movade means godliness is everywhere. Not just unity. Godliness. So why do we say there's more godliness, let's say, in the Beis Hamikdash, or on Shabbos, or in the Sefer Teira, whether in Mokim or in Zman? Is there more godliness in Moshe Rabbeinu, in a Kohen Gadol? So the brief answer is that it's a question of revelation of godliness. You cannot divide God into parts. God is, God forbid, there's no such thing as, as, a, as a composite. Ardus Hashem, it's complete unity. But like we say with Shemini Yatzeres, the Rebbe cites, from Rashi, from Medrash, that says, Hashem says, and Shemini says, Kosha alai pridaschem. It's difficult for me, your separation. So the Rebbe asks, it should say, Kosha alai pridaseinu, our separation. Why is it your separation? Because Hashem never gets separate from us. From Hashem's perspective and vantage point, we're always united. It is we who move away from the holidays and are not under the same influence and under the same aura of the power of all the Yom Tevim that we can feel separate from each other and from Hashem. So that's why God says, your separation. Divine unity is everywhere. The question is, how, 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 how conscious are we? How aware and how integrated it is in our lives? Because that's the whole purpose of Adir Betachtenim, that it should be on our terms. So in that context, there are things that God put into the universe that are more unified than others. For example, Teira Achas. But there's unity everywhere. You look in science and unity, but it's not so obvious. In Teira, you see it. Neshamas have that unity manifest in them because they're fundamentally one nation. Goy echad, ba'aretz. And they bring Ardus Hashem into this world. That doesn't mean there is no Ardus, it means it needs to be revealed. And in a fragmented universe, it's sometimes more concealed. So the Jewish nation is charged with a mission to reveal that in the inherent unity that's already there. That's on a very basic level. You could say, what about the divisiveness, God forbid, that exists among Jews? Yes, they can wander away also from their purpose. But in Lamaila, the Jews are, the, the Knesset Israel is one entity. That would be more revelation versus concealed. But it's deeper than that. Why Neshamas are Taki unified? Because in their fundamental source in the divine, they reflect the divine purpose. The end, not just the means. The universe itself is can be more fragmented or seem more fragmented because it's not expressing the divine essence. It's part of the structures, the means to the end. So everything in existence does work together. Nature does work with a certain symbiosis and unity, but it's not quite so fundamental and essential as it is to Neshamas, which express and are agents of God and therefore manifest and personify and embody the unity of the divine. Okay. With that, let us go to the three essays. Every week we do three essays from the Essay Contest 2019. The first is, The Secret of Success in Life. Mordechai Siegel, age 21, Kfar Chabad, Israel, a student in Yeshiva Stemchit Mimim, or Yehuda. And as the title suggests, that's exactly what he addresses. 
he begins by saying that uh, surely many of you reading the headline of the title of this essay will feel that you're going to suddenly get quick solutions, magical tricks. It's not the case. That's not how it works. There's no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as, ma- as magic pills. And there, ne- there never was and there never will be and they never really work. It comes with work, hard work and effort. And he begins to go into that where success truly comes from. Into the details. Citing And he says, he cites there about betochen and amuna, the idea of trust and faith, how that is necessary for true success. It elaborates on it in a very nice way and with a good anecdote, some humorous anecdotes, and how to fight the challenge to what blocks us from achieving such success. Well done, and I thank you for that. Arik Melchiali, Melchiali, Tipim Shel Coaching Chassidim. Tips for Hasidic coaches, Hasidic coaching. He's from Lud, Israel, age 45. He's a presenter, a senior presenter in a particular uh, group. Okay, so what does he write? Let's see his essay. Coaching, that's good. A very nice title. Tips for Hasidic coaching. So basically saying Hasidus comes to really teach us and coach us on how to be, live the best possible lives and fulfilling what God wants. So what he does is he actually goes through Tanya Pedic chapter 4 and 12 and, um, and lists it in a way, in a very practical bullet point way, he calls it a playlist, playlist of this music of Tanya of how you can actually take Tips, different tips that he gives in coaching. And goes one tip after the other, first from the Tanya I just mentioned, then from Tereir, then from Igris Kedish of the Rebbe. And he addresses each issue. First, uh, the first point was about, um, yeah, from the Tanya. Then he talks about music, as I said, about difficult challenges. Um, let's see, Menuchet Venefesh, yeah, finding peace and calm in your life. That's from Asicha Parsha Bamidbar, the Maimar Achbogel, many different sources. Anyway, bottom line, let me see how many there are. Six, seven, eight. Yeah. I think there are 11, 12. 12 tips. Very beautifully done. Each is very concise with sources, tips of Hasidic coaching. Excellent. Finally, the third is an English one tap in, tap out. Stern Asura Ringo, age 18, Montreal, Canada, student in Beishai Mushka, Seminary, Montreal. Phones, internet technology. The grandparents hate it, the parents love it, and the children can't seem to get enough of it. Many can barely live without it. So it's all about this technology. They say they, cannot con- they, can, they can control it if they want to, but regardless of what they say, many find it impossible to resist. Reaching for a device only moments after making, making such a declaration. Chassidus shows us that it is possible for us to live in the 21st century, to close the gates on this generation's Yetzirah, which includes the two main issues, negative content and waste of time, by using it only for the right purposes and only at the right times. And goes on to speak about content and what exactly is the standard our time, how to control, guarding your gates, and practical solutions. Another very practical essay. Well done as well. I commend you. These essays, 
are all now available. They get posted as we announce them and Meaningful Life, I'm sorry, at myatchsidasupply.com. And you can also get them if you subscribe to our weekly emails and we'll send you all updates, these essays as well as other updates. We're always updating and putting new material and content. Okay, my friends, this has been episode 282 of My Life Chassidus Applied. Everyone should have continuing Chodesh Cheshven and bringing the power of Tishrei into our lives. Good Geben Shriyar. And we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And we'll be here next week. So everyone have a very blessed week. And hopefully this will be the week of Geula, especially if we do our part in, it, in, uh, in achieving that. Futsu Menesech Chutzah.